to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we'll be talking about the Annunciation to Mary by the angel Gabriel. And he's the same angel that um, six months earlier had spoken to Zechariah when he was in the holy place offering up the incense and proclaiming the birth, miraculous birth, of John the Baptist. Before he was conceived, God announced his birth and gave his name and told the parents about what kind of child this was going to be. Well, he's about to do a similar thing, but extended when he's talking with Mary. Uh, Jesus is also going to be the result of a miraculous birth, but a miraculous birth in ways that have never been done before or since. Um, this is a virgin birth. And mankind, men, had nothing to do with this whatsoever. So we begin reading verse 26. In the sixth month, that's six months after the event in, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. This was a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Um, it's actually Miriam, but that's how we translate it. It's uh, as the Old Testament people, which is what they were at this time, her name was Miriam, like Moses' sister. Same name. The angel said to her, Greetings. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now Mary, you remember, she was just a, a, a little peasant girl in a small Israelite village on the border. And so she was from a border town, a small one, fairly insignificant town, and as important people in that village, she was not counted among that group. So here she is, we would say here is a nobody. And that's what she was. But in the eyes of God, she was the most important pe person in the world at that time. So it's a difference of perspective, isn't it? Now she herself didn't see herself that way. She saw herself as a simple peasant girl going about her daily tasks. And her daily quiet devotions to God. And God spoke to her during that devotions. Got to be careful. Having devotions is a dangerous thing. Especially if you're serious about it. And if you have your ears open to what God has to say to you. Instead of just telling him what we want him to hear. So the Lord sent this angel. And he says you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel tells her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. He says it twice. You will be with child, give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. 
She asks a practical experience of a question about how this is going to happen. She's not yet married. She's a virgin. She's a, a good young woman, a righteous young woman. And so she gets an answer because it's, she doesn't know what's going on. And it's never happened before. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the, Holy, of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, literally slave. I'm the Lord's slave. May it be to me as you have said. That's an astounding statement. The earth shook, or it should have, when she made that statement. So what comes first? The outward physical manifestations of what's going on or what takes place in the heart and in the life. Normally, it's what's going on inside that takes place first, isn't it? Oftentimes, the things that take place in this world, and even in the body, is an indication of what is already taking place inside, in the heart, in the relationship, in the responsiveness, in how we deal with people and events, circumstances, and relationships. So I want us to keep this in mind, and there's going to be an incredible transition period here. Um, this is the first time God has spoken in this way since Old Testament times, 400 years between Malachi and the appearance of this angel to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, 400 years, no fresh revelation, no fresh word from God. They were asking, in the literature you can read it, they're asking questions. Has God abandoned us? Has he, he gotten, have we pushed him too far this side? And we're on our own. And God is angry with us and there is no other answer. And in the midst of that, and yet the hope and the promise that maybe God was still working and dealing with them, the angel Gabriel begins to make these announcements. And it's going to be a tremendous thing that takes place here. Their whole concept of God and how God operates in the world is going to undergo a change, a dra dramatic, drastic, radical change. And it begins here. So if we were looking at the Old Testament and we talked about the temple, what would we be thinking of? The temple. Sacrifices, I mean, I mean the temple itself, no, not what's taking place inside it. Sorry, bad question. Um, your concept of a temple, it has to do with what takes place inside it. House of God, House of God it's a building. Um, we started off with um, a tabernacle, a movable, a movable building, if you want to look at it that way, a place to worship God, a, a place that was supposed to represent or symbolize the dwelling of God among men. That's what it was for. And eventually, you remember, uh, God worked through David and the others, established a kingdom, and um, they built a magnificent temple in Solomon's day. It was an awesome thing. It was huge. It was beautiful. It was luxuriant. Um, 
Only the finest and the best went into that. It was a, a pretty awesome sight. It was leveled to the ground. And they started over. And they built another temple, uh, Zerubbabel's temple. And it wasn't anywhere like the original one, but it was pretty good for the situation that they were dealing with. Later on, people like Herod in Jesus' day, Herod the Great, um, was hated by his people that he ruled. And, but he was always trying to do things to earn their favor. Kind of like a child who feels like he, his parents don't want him and always trying to have to prove himself or herself, you know, to, to try to, to gain favor. Or a person caught in a relationship that they're not, uh, you know, they don't feel valued. And they're always doing things to try to earn favor or attention or something. Well, that's what Herod was doing. And so he goes and he takes Zerubbabel's temple and he... It was a, he did more than just restore it. I mean, he elaborated it and made it a really uh, great work of art in and of itself. That's what was going on in Jesus' day. They'd been working on it for 46 years, and they still weren't done. So we've got these kinds of things. When you move to the book of Acts, things have changed. So... When Moses and the craftsmen had built the tabernacle and they came to dedicate it, what was God's response? They're dedicating the temple, they're sacrificed first time, the tabernacle. Ark of the Covenant, they slaughtered the animals, they're sprinkling the blood. What was God's response? Fire came down from heaven, didn't it? Fire came down and consumed the offering. David had sinned, and yet he was still searching for a place to build the tabernacle of God, the temple. And even in his sin, God was leading him and directing him. And to atone for his sin, which had a tremendous impact, thousands of people in the country were dying because David had sinned. And... He comes before God and he's crying out and pleading with God on behalf of these innocent people that are dying because of his sin. And God tells him to offer a sacrifice at this guy's threshing floor. And he does that. And what's God's response? He answers by fire. Later on, the next generation, when they had built on that spot and Solomon comes to dedicate his temple... And they, for the first time, bring that sacrifice into this beautiful, magnificent building that they've created to the glory of God. What was God's response? Fire. At the rededication of Zerubbabel's temple, there's no record of fire. So the next time you see the fire of God falling is on the day of Pentecost. This time, it's not in a building. This time, it's not to consume a sacrifice. What happens on the day of Pentecost? Fire of God fills His people. 
Paul, when he went to Athens, this is a tremendous place of idolatry with all these statues and sacrifices and they were worshiping everybody they knew how to worship. And if you had, gave, they were kind of like the Hindus, you know. Uh, if you come up with a new God, that's okay. They'll worship him too just to cover all the bases, make sure you're okay. Yeah. You don't want to leave anybody out or offend somebody. That's a serious thing. And so the Athenians were like that. And Paul comes and he tells them in Acts 17, the God who created the universe and all that is, is he doesn't live in a temple made by man. We don't worship him with gold and silver and stuff. Because the dwelling, because of the birth of his son, the dwelling of God is now in the hearts of, the, of people. And when the fire comes, it's not going to come to a place it's going to infill its people once again. That's the transition. It's going from outward to inner. From a building to a being. And God is telling us and he's showing us, this is what I mean. And he says, this is what I have in mind. And so he comes personally in the birth of this small infant. God in the flesh. This is the goal and purpose all along. God and man in close communion because he's in us now. So in the book of Haggai, Haggai was one of the prophets who was encouraging people to rebuild the temple after it had been destroyed in, in uh, Zerubbabel's day. They'd been in Babylon for 70 years in captivity and by God's grace and an act of his incredible power and mercy they were allowed to come back and rebuild this temple and they started and they had opposition and they got tired and they laid the foundation and quit <laughs> for a generation they just quit got busy trying to build their own house make a living you know send the kids to school they just got busy and resources were tight so they neglected the temple God stirs up these prophets Haggai was one of them and um he says, it's time, it's time to build the temple of the Lord. And God used these men, Haggai, Zechariah, uh, Malachi, got these guys, stirred people up, and God did a tremendous thing, and they rebuilt this temple. And here's the prophecy from Haggai chapter 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 6. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desired of nations, the desired of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. And then in verse 9, the glory of this present house, he was talking about Zerubbabel's house, will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now he's talking about a building. But this was fulfilled when Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem. And it was filled with greater glory than Solomon's temple. It wouldn't have made any difference if it was a shack. It would have been filled with greater glory than Solomon's temple because the Lord himself was there in the flesh. So God is speaking to Mary and what he's telling her 
is, Mary, you are going to become the temple of the living God. That's what he was telling her. God incarnate in you. Now if you stop and think about it, that's God's intent and purpose for every single one of us. In a different way than Mary. That was literal. But he intends to have Christ born within each one of our lives. And for God himself to dwell with us. That's what his name means. God with us. Just before the crucifixion, Jesus was talking to the disciples. And he was explaining to them about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. And he's telling them that he's about to go away from them. They're still not grasping that he's going to die that night or that, uh, the next day. They're still not grasping that. And he's telling them, I'm going to be leaving, but I'm going to send you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. He says, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you, these disciples, you know him, for he lives, abides, dwells with you, and he will be in you. Again, the difference from outward to inward, from a building or a presence to a being inside. And that's what he's promising. So what Jesus is telling Mary is I'm going to do a new thing and it begins with you. What's happening to Mary is going to be unique. It's a one-of-a-kind thing. Once in all of creation, this is going to take place. But it becomes the model on which every person who comes into the kingdom will be modeled after that pattern. Christ in you, 197 times in the New Testament. Christ in you in you, not with you, not beside you, before you, behind you, Christ in you, and us in him. So as we go through the New Testament, we see the, the Christians begin to understand exactly what Christ has done for them with the coming of the Holy Spirit now, not to fill the temple, but to fill their bodies and to make their bodies the place where Christ dwells. That's why we can be holy people. Because of the presence of Christ dwelling in us. It's not our holiness, it's His. The only holiness we have is based on His presence. The only thing that made a temple different from any other building was the presence of the one who was in there or not. And if He wasn't in there, it became just an ordinary building. So Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and he's reminding people, you know, where do we receive salvation? We receive it inside. How is that expressed? In the deliverance of the body. <laughs> When there's a healing that takes place deep within the heart, oftentimes it's expressed in the healings of bodies. It's not always that way, 
But oftentimes it does. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church because they're having a problem with what they're doing with their bodies. They're using their bodies to do sinful things. There's nothing wrong with the body. It was wholly created by God in God's image. It's not the body which is at fault. It's what we do with it that corrupts it and degrades it. But the body itself is a holy thing made in the image and likeness of God. And so it becomes holy because of his presence in us. So these Christian people at Corinth had accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, but the body was still doing the old things. And Paul said, that's not right. And so he writes in chapter 6, verse 19, and he's writing to the church, and it's, it's, a, it's like a surprise that he registers here, and he says, don't you know? Do you not know? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And Peter's going to tell us the price is the blood of Jesus Christ. You are not your own. Therefore, honor God with your body, with how you live your life, in your relationships, in your activities, in your coming and going. Um, that's where we're to honor God in our bodies. He wanted them to understand. He had already said it in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? So he's telling us again and again. He says it again in 2 Corinthians six sixteen. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said it three times here. So the temple becomes the meeting place between God and men. The temple is a holy place because it's filled with the presence of God. So the incarnation here is what God is telling Mary. God's going to shift the focus of attention away from the building into a relationship where it should have been all along. Building wasn't wrong. It was a, a model to prepare them for, to understand what it meant. They got the idea of the sacredness of the place because of the presence of the Lord. Now they need to take it a step further to the sacredness of the person for the very same reason, the presence of the Lord. And it's a new thing. And Mary is the first. So this is what God is trying to, to get across to us. We glorify God. Our spiritual act of worship takes place in the body. That's what Paul says in Romans 12.1. In view of God's mercies, therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy acceptable, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. God is looking, Jesus told the woman at the well, for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And he was talking to this prostitute, this woman who had been married many times and was living with a man she wasn't married to. And Jesus is saying, he's looking for people who are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. 
with your body, with what you do, with who you are. So the earth should have shook when Mary gave this response. She knew God was speaking to her and revelation always gives life and enlightenment and God was doing a new thing within her and it calls for a response. When God speaks, there needs to be a response. Every time God spoke at creation in Genesis, something happened. God's word does not return empty. It accomplishes, Hebrews tells us, the purpose for which it was sent. It's going to create life in Mary right now. And when we accept Christ, we are receiving the living word into our hearts, and that's when we become alive. And we know who he is, and when we know who he is, we begin to know who we are. We're created in his image. John's going to tell us later on in his letter, in this world, we are like him. That's what he's wanting to do. So Mary doesn't understand. This is a, a concept far beyond anything she hoped or dreamed or imagined. This is way beyond. And yet God is telling her and proclaiming her she doesn't understand completely, but she's willing and available for God to work in and through her to glorify his name. And that obedience means salvation for you and me. So her response, Lord, I'm your slave. May it be to me as you have said. Lord, here I am, like Isaiah. Here am I, you can send me. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, three times. Lord, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. That's what Mary just said. Be it to me as you have said. And Jesus taught us as Christians, to pray that way. Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven, but even beyond that, your will be done in me, because I'm the one praying. So that's what he's looking for. Not as I will, but as, you're, as you will. Your will be done. How can that happen? How can we be transformed? The kinds of people that we are or the kinds of people that we know around us, how can they be transformed? And he's told us already. Nothing is impossible with God. If God can change you, if he can change me, he can change anybody. There isn't anyone beyond that scope of what he wants to do. So peace, true peace, is straightforward, humble acceptance of God's will. That's what it is. All of our striving and struggles comes when we want to do our thing instead of what God is asking us to do. When we pray through or struggle through and we find where God wants us to be 
and we're comfortable with who he has created us to be. That's where the peace is. That's where the peace comes from. So the real struggle for peace occurs within us. So we look at the world and all the violence, and it's a violent place. And it's a violent world that Jesus came into. And we said, Lord, um, can't you bring peace on the earth? And he says, what about the war that's going on in your own heart? The struggles that you face every day. It begins right there. So that we can know him and have peace with God. That's Romans chapter 5. We have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the only way. That is the only way. So we need to pray that God will help us to realize who we are because we understand who He is or we've received who He is. So this is what Isaiah promises and offers to us as well. You will keep Him in perfect peace, complete, total peace. The one whose mind is stayed on God. Because he trusts in God. Our problem is our mind has stayed on me. My will be done on earth as it is in heaven. (laughs) And that's where the issues are. So when our mind is stayed on self, then we become like porcupines. We've got all the bristles out. Don't tread on me. If you do, you're going to get hurt. Leave me alone. When our mind is stayed upon God, then we are accessible to Him. We're vulnerable to others. And we know that we don't have to fear because we know who it is that we trust and who is with us and who is watching over us. And we are safe in His hands no matter where we are, no matter what's happening to us, or what's going on around us. There is a peace. And even at the point of death, there is a peace within the heart because we know who we trust in and where we are going. Like we said last week, that's why the New Testament talks about death as sleep because it's a temporary, transitory thing. The goal of life is not to sleep. The goal of life is to live. And the goal of death for the Christian is not the end. It's a new beginning of life. And Paul tells us death will be swallowed up, consumed with life. And its power totally broken. So the Lord comes, the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, and that's how we are born again, isn't it? Holy Spirit coming upon us, creating life where there was none. That's what happens when we accept Christ. Jesus became what you and I are so that we might become what he is. And that's the miracle of Christmas. God stepping down into your shoes and mine and offering us his. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you today as people who talk a lot about peace and very few really live it. We thank you for the good news that your word to us is peace 
Don't be afraid. Trust me. Help us, Lord, like Mary, even if we don't understand, to be able to offer ourselves, our lives, our bodies as a living temple for you to indwell. And as you come, we pray that you would bring all that you are, the peace, the joy, the forgiveness, the grace, all these things which we so desperately need. And we find in their fullness in your presence. Draw us close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever read Ezekiel? That's kind of a strange book. It's a difficult book. It starts off with this tremendous vision. It takes place in a thunderstorm. And all this lights and stuff. And he sees this, uh, the cherubim. And as you read through that book, what you find is the cherubim, they are actually the throne of God. God sits on a living throne. And that's why these angels are over the Ark of the Covenant. It's the cherubim. God sits enthroned among the living creatures, the cherubim. And God wants to be enthroned in your life and mine. He gives us the object lesson to help us understand what he intends for you and for me. It's an incredible thing that God is offering us. The living God in our hearts. What can we need that we don't have in him? Who can take it away? Who can give it? Only God. You know, David was a man that, um, like us, very human man. He had great successes, tremendous revelations, devastating sins. And yet God was able to work in him and through him to bring glory and honor to his name. He promises to do that within us as well. There's a, a verse in the book of Psalms. And in that, in that psalm, David says, All of my longings, God knows all of my longings. Psalm 38, 9. Uh, it's a quote actually from 2 Samuel. And God sa- uh, David says, All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. What is it that you long for? Not just something that you want or you like. Something that you long for deeply within your heart. Think about it. David was a fugitive. He hadn't done anything wrong at that point. And in his dealings with Saul, he had always been above board. He'd been gracious. Even when he had him in his power to hurt him, he refused to do that. His relationship with Saul was a righteous one. And Saul was trying to kill him. And David was having to flee from his home and his family. He had to live out in the desert, always on the run. He had a price on his head. He had to be out in desolate places, alone, oftentimes. And then all the malcontents, all the dissatisfied, all the grumblers and complainers, they all came to him. (laughs) So thanks a lot. But these were loyal men. 
they had integrity after a fashion. And they, uh, like us, you know, there was a mixed bag. And so David had been separated from his home for a long time, Bethlehem. And um, he made a statement in front of some of his men hiding up in a cave. He said, man, my, I, just, I just long, my body longs for a cool taste of the water of Bethlehem, which was where the enemy troops were camped. <laughs> A couple of his men at night took their life in their hands and they stole their way, stealth fighters, commando troops, you know. They got in there and got some water at great personal risk and got back to David about daylight and they had this container of water from Bethlehem, what his soul had longed for. And they said, David, here it is. This is your Christmas present water from Bethlehem. And David looked at that and he looked at these men risking their lives so he could have a drink of water. And he took that and he poured it out on the ground and he says, this is the blood of these men. I'm not going to drink it. So what do you do with your longings? The things that are deep within that you long for. Can we pour them out as a sacrifice to God? Say, God, you fulfill these longings in your way and in your time. I'm pouring them out before you as an offering. Can we do that this morning? Pour out the longings of our heart before God and come and receive what he offers in their place. So we come, and this is possible, because of what Jesus has done for us. God coming to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, And nobody else could do for us either. Because on the night that he was betrayed, in the presence of those who would betray him, those who would deny him, those men that he loved and had committed himself to and they had committed themselves to him, he know their failures, past, present, and future. And he loved them anyway. And so on that night, he took, after he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body. It is broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. And after he had given thanks once again, he gave it to his disciples saying, each of you drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you and for many. It's for the forgiveness of sins. It's the only forgiveness of sins. And the scripture tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so Jesus poured out his blood freely and willingly for you and for me. And he invites us to come and receive this bread that can give life, this drink that can cleanse our sins and give us a fresh start. Um, our church has, believes in open communion. If you're a visitor here, a guest, uh, we hope that you feel part of the family and become part of the family if you're, if you're staying here for a while. But the invitation is from the Lord. We're all sinners saved by grace, and we invite you to share with us um, as we participate in this.
Don't feel pressured. If you don't want to, that's fine. But if you would like to participate, we want you to know you are welcome. Normally, we'll have someone over here that would be willing to pray with you. If you want somebody to pray with you about anything, they would be willing to do that. So I'm going to ask those who are serving communion if they'll please come forward.